Amen. Thank you very much, Tate Makokwe. Let me greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, such a joy to see you all as we gather together for worship, to sing to the Lord and to also hear his word and what he has to say to us this morning. This week has been a week that I think uh, a lot of births happened. Um, we had uh, Auntie Amber and continue to pray for her. She was uh, also uh, birthdaying. Um, we had Auntie Nomika and we also had Anel. Um, who are also growing this week. And may you continue to keep them in prayer. Um, we continue with our series on, the, on Philippians, Life in Christ, Philippians, and we're still in Philippians chapter 1. Um, I see also new faces at the back there. Um, I don't know if maybe you could uh, introduce yourselves. I see the two brothers at the back What are your names? Peter. Emmanuel. Okay. Um, you, you are welcome. Um, feel at home and uh, join us as we, uh, even after church, uh, for, for tea and coffee. Okay. Thank you. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 27 to verse 30. And our title for today's sermon is a gospel-shaped community, a gospel-shaped community. Let us read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. This is God's word. Let us hear him. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And this is God's word. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, you have loved us. You have loved us by sending your son Jesus Christ to die in our place and to um, reconcile us back to you. You have loved us once again by giving us your word. So that in reading your word, in hearing your word, we might know your will and walk in your way. The psalmist says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We pray, Father, that you give us clarity as we hear your word. Give us understanding of it. Give us a love for it a desire of God to walk in your ways. We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A gospel-shaped community. A gospel-shaped community. By community, I mean the local church, obviously. 
the local church. In other words, by this title, I seek to draw your attention to what the lives of believers brought together through Christ looks like. I want you to, I, I seek to, 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 to hold up this picture of a gospel-shaped community so that we will corporately, we will all corporately desire that this kind of life will be made manifest in our midst. That when we hear or, 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 or see this picture of a gospel-shaped community, that it will be our desire that we will be such a community. Amen? And as we follow Paul's train of thought here in this chapter, we saw that in verse 12, he started to explain his thoughts regarding his imprisonment. And, and his, his purpose here is to comfort and encourage um, uh, the, the Philippians by bringing to their awareness that all that happened to him served to advance the gospel in, in places where the gospel would not have otherwise reached people if he was not imprisoned. He mentions how his imprisonment has worked out for, for good by giving courage to, to weak Christians to, to, to witness for Christ, to, 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 to boldly witness the gospel to other people. And it has caused many people to preach the gospel of Christ. Again, he goes on to, to mention that through his, uh, uh, that though he is facing the possibility of death, he is undeterred in his desire to honor Christ and to serve for the progress of the church. Now, in verse 12 to verse 26, Paul uses his situation as a, as a, as a lesson, more of a springboard lesson um, with regards to trials and the difficulties that we face in life. We saw in verse 12 to 18 that he calls them to see trials through a gospel lens. And in, in verse 18 to 26, he is calling the church to have an undying determination in the face of trials. And here in verses 27 to verse 30, he shifts his attention. If you, if, you, if you look at the tone of Paul, you can see that he is shifting his attention from him and to the Philippians to, to exhort or, or to call them to be a gospel-shaped community. His attention is shifted and he is looking to the Philippians. And we find this in the very first words of verse 27. Listen to, to what Paul says. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So now he is addressing them. He, he, he is addressing the Philippians. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word only here causes us to zoom into or, or to pay attention to the next words that Paul is about to say. It, 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 it conveys the idea of the one essential thing, the, the most important thing, only. In other words, Paul is saying, if you remember just one thing from everything that I've been saying, if one thing remains in your mind, this is the one thing that you must have in your mind. Only remember this. And we see what this thing that he, he wants them to, to have in mind is in the ways that follow. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Paul here 
is concerned with their manner of life, the, the way they conduct themselves as Christians. He says, let your lives as believers be the kind of lives that shows the power and the beauty of the gospel. In, in Titus chapter 2, Paul talks about a life that adorns the doctrine of God as Savior. To, to adorn is to show some, something that is beautiful, to, to show that this thing is beautiful. So he wants them to show the beauty of the gospel, and not only the beauty of the gospel, but the power of the gospel through their lives, through their manner of life. In other words, when I say I believe the gospel, listen to this, when I say I believe the gospel, my life must say amen. My conduct must match my words. When I say I believe the gospel, and if that is the case, I'm walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, when I say I believe the gospel, but my life contradicts my words, then I'm living in a manner that is dishonoring to the gospel. My conduct does not match my words. And, and I submit to you this morning, I put it to you this morning, that to live a life dishonoring to the gospel as a Christian is a direct attack on the gospel. To say I am a Christian but your life is in contradiction with what the gospel calls, how the gospel calls you to live, is, 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 is directly attacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is dishonoring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that our lives must represent Christ well to the world. The world is watching you as a, as a Christian. And they are looking at your life, even if you don't see it. They are watching you. As one, one person once said, that the world does not read the Bible. They read Christians. They read Christians. And when they see a Christian living the same way they are, participating in the very same sins that they are participating in, speaking like them, and reasoning like them. Guess what they will say to you? Guess what will come out of their mouth? Hypocrites! All Christians are hypocrites, right? That's what they say. In a way, let me say this as, as, as more of a, of a parenthesis. You are not only representing Christ to the world, but you're also representing Christians. Because when they look at you uh, uh, living a life contrary to what you profess, they're not going to say, you are a hypocrite. They're going to say, what? Christians are what? Hypocrites. John MacArthur says this. He says, when the unsaved look at the church and, and do not see holiness, purity, and virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel it proclaims. When pastors commit gross sins and later are restored to positions of leadership in the church, when church members lie and steal, cheat, and, and gossip, and quarrel, and when congregations seem to care little about sin and, and hypocrisy in their midst, the world is understandably repulsed, disgusted, by their claims to love and serve God. And the name of Christ is sullied and, and, and it is dishonored. 
in our midst. Notice here that a gospel-shaped life is not lived first because there is a watching world. Listen to the words of Paul. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Listen to, to, to the next sentence. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. Right? He says, in other words, even though this life is visible to the world and, and stands as a testimony of the transforming power of the gospel, our motivation to live this way is not to be seen by the world, but our love and gratefulness to God. Right? Our motivation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is, it, 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 it originates or comes from our gratefulness and our love for God. And that will, when we, when we love God and, and are grateful to him by living in this way, it will follow by, by being what? By being witnesses for Christ in the way we live. Paul calls them to live this kind of life even when he is not around. When he is not there to see them. And it is easy, think about it, it's easy to live like a Christian when people are looking at you, right? When you are here in the midst of other Christians, it is easy to live like a Christian. To speak gently, to, to act kindly, to pray openly, to sing joyfully. But when in private, you are a different individual. You are a lamp when you are with people gentle, humble. When you are with your family, you are a lion. The way you speak, no kindness, no gentleness. Your words cut deep. The Bible has a word for that kind of life. Right? It has a word for that kind of life. What is that word? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. When you are two-faced. When you have a face as a Christian and a, a face as a different person. And Paul calls them to live an, a, a, life, a, a, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ even when he's not there to see them. We do not live a holy life because my pastor is going to see me, right? We do not live like that because my pastor might see me. No. We live because we honor God. We, we want to show our love and our gratefulness to what God has done in our lives. And here, as Paul tells them to live this life, we see here how he continues to, to show them what it looks like. We see that there are three things that, that characterize a gospel-shaped community. Three things that characterize a gospel-shaped community. One, a gospel-shaped community is united in Christ. Two, it is fearless for Christ. And three, it is a gospel, a gospel community. It's a community that is suffering for Christ. First of all, a gospel community is united in Christ. United in Christ. Look at, look at verse 27. B, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that, so that whether I come and see you or not, or, uh, whether I come to see you or am absent, 
listen to these words, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what I want to hear about you. I want to hear that you are, not, you are united in Christ. Paul makes it clear first that a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is characterized by unity. Jesus, through his redemptive work on the cross, has brought people from every walk of life, from every cultural background, together as one body. And this is a vision that John the Apostle sees of the church in heaven. We call this an eschatological vision because it is something that will happen in the future. And this is what he sees in, in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. He says, I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and, and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvations belong to the, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, this great, diverse multitude has experienced the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And, and it is, this, is, this is expressed now in the local church. We express this, this eschatological group of people in the midst of, of the local church. As a local church, we are an expression of that group of people that are diverse. And the church in this world will face trying times. It will face difficult times. So it is essential that we be united in Christ. It, it is important that we maintain this unity as Christians, as the church. And note what Paul is saying about this unity. Note what is, he says it must look like. He says, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The phrase here, standing firm, literally means to stand. It, me it means to stand. But when it is used in the New Testament, it is frequently used to convey ideas of firmness, or, or uprightness, and thus it, 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 it means in essence to, to stand firm and hold one's ground. John MacArthur says about this, he says figuratively, it refers to holding fast to a belief, a conviction, or principle without compromise, regardless of personal cost, being firmly fixed in matters of biblical truth and, and holy living is included in this injunction. Paul goes on to explain to them that the manner in which they should stand should be in what? One spirit with one mind. You see those words? In one spirit with one mind. This mutual standing in the same convictions and, and responsibilities must be done in one spirit with one mind. And this gives us an idea of a deep unity. A, a harmony and an in, interdependent dependence. 
And from the very beginning of the church, we see that there was one spirit. There was one mind. We see this in the testimony of Acts chapter 2, when we read from verses 44 to verse 46. Listen to what the Bible says as Luke tells us about the church in Acts. He says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their positions and, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Look at what, what, what Luke is saying. These words, he says they were together. They had all things in common. Again, he repeats himself. He said they were they were in the temple together. They were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. You can see how they were closely united as a church. There was unity in their midst. They were together, one spirit with one mind. This is something that we must strive for as a church. This is something that we must uh, uh, cultivate in our midst. Unity. This is uh, what Lehman Strauss says. He says, I know of nothing that mars a gospel testimony as does disunity among God's people caused by self-seeking. There is nothing that destroys our gospel testimony to the world as disunity. Nothing is more harmful to the unsaved than to discover division among Christians. If Satan can disrupt the ranks of God's children, he has won a great victory. He knows the truth of our Lord's statement when the Lord says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. It will not stand. Again, our Lord prayed for his, people, for his own people. He said in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they may all be one, that the world may believe. And, and to stand fast in one spirit with one mind means to face the opposition unitedly. Unity is essential in the home, in business, and in the church. In other words, we must stand firm and upright in perfect oneness. We must be together in unity. I think about uh, people who are standing in solidarity over an issue that they are facing as a community and they they go marching, they go to, 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 to um, the government offices, marching together, hand in hand, standing side by side. And this is the picture that Paul gives us. He says he, he wants to hear that we are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. United, standing together in one spirit, one mind. In other words, there are no agendas. No other agendas are interfering with, them, with this fellowship, with this community. 
because it's a gospel community. We, the only agenda that is in our minds, the only thing that we are pulling together is to see the progress of the gospel, is to see the gospel reaching out to all corners of the world. And my desire for CBC, for, 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 for this church, is that we will, we will be so closely knit in, in the bond of love and, and unity that the first word that comes to mind when, when people try to describe this community will be the word family. That we will be so close, we'll be so united, that the only word fit enough to describe our community will be the word family. That word cannot describe us if we are divided. That word cannot describe us if I don't know where you live and you don't know where I live. That word cannot describe us if I'm not going to open my door to you and welcome you into my house to eat what I eat and, and to share what I share. That word is not going to describe us unless we come together in unity. That word is not going to describe us if we have different agendas. Right? It's not going to happen. My desire is that this would be the word that describes us. That when I look at another individual, another Christian at the mall and, and I'm walking with people from work and they ask me, who is this person? I would say, this is my spiritual family. I would say, this is my brother, my sister in Christ. So to be a gospel-shaped family, a gospel-shaped community, we must be characterized by unity. But not only that, the second thing that characterizes a gospel community is that they are fearless for Christ. Fearless for Christ. Look at verse 28. Fearless for Christ. And he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You see, it is not secret that the church will face hardship and hostility in the world. And week after week, we, we look at believers in countries where Christianity is considered illegal. Today we were, we were looking at Sudan, where they are being persecuted, arrested, and, and killed for, for their faith. The church will go through trying times. It will go through hostile times in the world. When you look at the church, you must look at it in two aspects. The church in this world and the church in the future. The church in this world is a militant church. We are fighting the devil, fighting the world, and fighting sin. We are a militant church. We are a church at war. And I'm not talking about guns and, and, and knives. That's not the kind of war we are involved in. We are involved in a spiritual war. We are fighting the devil. He's our enemy and he's, he tries every time to, to, to destroy the church. We're fighting the world. We're fighting sin. This is 
what we're going to experience. And Jesus has spoken about this to his disciples. He said to them, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. He doesn't say maybe. It will happen. It will happen. It is a definite thing. And again in Luke chapter 21, verse 16 and 17, listen to what he says. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This was also the case in Philippi. They faced persecution because of their faith. Paul says, even though that is the case, you are not to be frightened by anything by your opponents. In other words, he says, don't let anyone cause you to stop following Christ. Don't let anyone scare you away from following Christ. And isn't that the case? That there's so much pressure from the world trying to press you out of your faith in Christ, right? Trying to convince you to leave your faith in Christ. Friends and relatives trying to convince you to leave the faith to a point that you are even disowned. You are disowned because of your faith. You are called names because of your faith. You are mocked by the world, persecuted by the world. But the Bible says, don't be afraid to stand for Christ. And I wonder, let me ask you this question, which voice will you listen to? Which voice are you going to listen to? The voice of the world that says, don't follow Christ, stop following Christ, or the voice of Christ that says, don't be afraid to stand for me. Don't be afraid to follow after me. Which voice are you going to listen to? The voice of Christ says, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16 verse 33. It says again the voice of Christ. Do not fear those who will kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. It says again behold I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Matthew 28 verse 20. This is the voice you are to listen to, the voice of Christ. He says in your fearlessness, he says your fearlessness for Christ, Paul says this, he says your fearlessness for Christ is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says when you stand for Christ and they continue to persecute you, they continue to mock you, he says that is a sign of their destruction. Remember when Paul was persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9 and he, he was going to Damascus to arrest Christians and possibly bring, bring them back to have them executed because of their faith. What happens is that as Paul is on his horse, he is struck from his horse and he falls down. What are the words that Jesus Christ says? He says, Paul was not fighting Christ physically, right? Paul was fighting who? The Christians. But what does Jesus say? 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, to persecute Christians is to go against Christ himself. Is to attack Christ himself. Christ sees that as a personal attack. And Paul is saying here, they are persecuting you, but don't be frightened because that is a sign of their destruction. Kent Hughes explains this. He says, this does not mean that their adversaries would recognize their own doom, though they might have a dim awareness of it, but that it is nevertheless a sign of their destruction, their judgment. Of course, believers see it all, including their own salvation. D.A. Carson explains, your change in character your united stand in the defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes, both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are people, are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. Paul says, your standing and their persecution is a sign. It's a sign of their destruction. And it's a sign of your salvation. At the end of the day, you will be vindicated before God. Remember what he said last week, Paul? He said, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed even when I stand before Caesar and Caesar renders a verdict saying I am guilty, he says, I know when I stand before God, I will be vindicated. It doesn't matter what the world says about my Christianity. It doesn't matter what the world says about my commitment to Christ. I know that when I stand before God, I will be vindicated. Amen. So the truth, this truth should encourage us to fearlessly stand for truth, for the truth of Christ, even in the midst of opposition and hostility. So a gospel-shaped community is characterized first by being united in Christ and, and again by being fearless. Not only that, but third and last, a gospel-shaped community is characterized by suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ. Look at verse 29 verse, and verse 13. Paul says, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is an unpopular thing to hear about the life in Christ, right? It is very unpopular. The fact that the prosperity gospel has crept into many churches and has established itself as a Christian doctrine has misled a lot of people into thinking that Christianity is a trouble-free life. People think that Christianity is a life free from trouble. This prosperity garbage has, has muddied people's understanding of what a Christian is and what a Christian life is. They believe that to be a Christian means that it means having a life of wealth, it means having a life of perpetual health and, and prosperity. 
And to not possess those things, they think that it means that you don't have enough faith or that it's a curse upon you. And I submit to you that even though this is what you hear from popular preachers on radio or television, this is not even remotely close to Christianity. It is man-centered. It is garbage. It is satanic. It is satanic. Listen to what the Bible says. Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, listen to these words, I'm going to read them very slow. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, one. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted. He says, it has been granted. And it is very interesting to note that the Greek word, the Greek word here, translated granted, is taken from the same word that means grace or, or, or favor. Very same word. The noun form of this word is for spiritual gifts and has the idea of bestowing graciously. Everything comes from God. And I want you to notice that we are granted two things. Salvation, to believe in Christ, right? And suffering. To suffer for his sake. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not a gospel that tickles ears. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are quick to attribute our salvation to God. But when it comes to our suffering, we don't say it is God working in our lives. We don't, we don't see suffering as a gift of God. We see suffering as something that Satan came up with. As if God is, is powerless to remove it in our lives. He wants to remove it, but he's saying, please fast, I will remove it. Please pray enough, maybe pray for a week, then I will remove it. God is not like, a, he's not a demigod. He's not a small God waiting for you shackled and waiting for you to unloose him with your prayers. Your prayers don't unloose God. Your prayers align you with the will of God. Are we understanding this? God is not bound and he wants us to pray so that we can unbind him for him to fight. He's not a lion in a cage where uh, uh, we can play with the lion outside the cage but when we release it, we run away. God is a wild God. He is not bound. He's not bound. Our prayers don't remove the chains of God. He has no chains. When we are suffering, it is not Satan. Satan might have a purpose to destroy our faith, but God with that suffering wants to build our faith. He wants to strengthen us. It has been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to press this point so that you can see that prosperity preaching is garbage. And this is a perspective that the apostles had. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after they were beaten for preaching the gospel, this is what the Bible says. It says, then they left the presence of the council. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing. 
think about that. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. What do we do? We complain. We doubt God. We think God, that God is not good. And we leave the faith. Why? Because we have listened to this prosperity garbage. This idea of suffering for Christ is not new here in Philippians. It is widespread throughout the Bible. When you see Acts chapter 14 verse 22, after the disciples were, were stoned in Antioch and Lystra, they, they returned to those cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to, to continue in the faith, and saying, listen to this, and saying to them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many, this is scripture, I'm reading scripture. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I was going to quote something in Zulu, but I'm going to have mercy on some of you. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Listen to this. This is what it says. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We love that, right? We love hearing that we are children of God. Even the spirit bears witness. And if children, then heirs. We are heirs of God. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We love that, but we leave it there. Listen to the next sentence. Provided we suffer for him. Provided we suffer with him. You see that? In order that we may also be glorified with him. Again, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says that he does not want them to be moved by the tribulations that they were facing. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, listen to what he says. He says this, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We are destined for this suffering in this world. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul says, don't be surprised. Remember how much we told you about it? We told you about it when it did not come. When it was not there yet, we were telling you that we were to suffer. It is here. Don't be surprised. James says to the believers, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of trials. It means that they will face various kinds of trials. And seeing what the scriptures say about trials, this should tell us that God does not feather bed his children by giving them a trial-free life. Trials are good for us. It's a hard pill to swallow, but they are. They are good for us. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God does not withhold anything good from people who are working uprightly. But not good according to your definition. Good according to God's definition. Even trials from God's definition are good for you and he will not withhold them. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 says about Jesus, although he was a son, he lent obedience through what he suffered. And my my question is, if Jesus, the sinless son of God, 
had to learn obedience through suffering. How much more we? How much more we? Jesus himself, the sinless son of God, had to learn obedience through suffering. And as a gospel-shaped community, we must always be ready to honor God, even if that means suffering. Amen? Our presence in this world as a gospel-shaped community must be one that adorns the beauty of the gospel, the kind of presence that shows the world the transforming power of the gospel. For that to be the case, we must be united in Christ. We must be fearless for Christ. And we must be ready to suffer for Christ. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we thank you. Thank you that you are the one who speaks in your word. And you speak clearly in your word. Ideas that we have in our minds of how our lives must be that are unbiblical. We pray that you help us, oh God. Help us reject those ideas to embrace your definition of what it is to be a Christian, of what it is to be a gospel-shaped community, that we may seek after unity as a church. We may seek after boldness, that we may be fearless for Christ. And, and when we suffer, that we may honor you as a church. We may see that it is you working in our lives to strengthen us, to shape us, to sharpen us, to be people that honor you. Pray that you work in our hearts even today. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.